Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Quentin Crew. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. Writer Malcolm Harris has a new book out called Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. It's as sweeping as the title suggests, a lively biography of Malcolm's hometown that covers nearly two centuries. Malcolm traces the connections between the settling of California and the advent of the railroad, the establishment of Stanford University, the technological boom of the long 20th century, and our own data-driven present. What you may not expect, though, is that the book is also, in many ways, a history of the cinema. As Malcolm details, Edward Moybridge developed his pioneering equine motion studies under the patronage of railroad baron Leland Stanford, who wanted to figure out how to raise better racehorses. So on today's episode, we invited Malcolm to join us for a conversation about his new book and California's decade-spanning nexus of technology, capital, and the moving image. From MyBridge, we made our way to several other movies that Malcolm cites in his book, including Justin Lin's Better Luck Tomorrow, Wayne Wang's Chan is Missing, the dot-com-era thriller Antitrust, and more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Very thrilled to have... Today's guest on the podcast, how, how would I describe him? A public intellectual, an author with uh, an exciting book, and apparently a cinephile based on the book, uh, and someone who... See, someone who claims to listen to the film exactly. podcast. It's true. <laughs> exactly. Very flattering. Anyway, we'll do, we'll Malcolm... Do a, we'll do a pop quiz at the end to see if, whether or not that's... Yeah, no, I'll do it. I'll go back to the Violet days. I got... Oh, yeah, you know, okay. Oh, we can, we can dig won't. deep. All right. Damn. All right. Good, all right. True, true head. I gotta introduce myself. Introduce yourself, yes. I'm sure you can do better than what I what I just did. <laughs> no, I like that. It's the first time I've ever been referred to as a cinephile. And I'm, ah. I'm trying it on. I like the way it feels. My name is Malcolm Harris. I'm the author of Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism in the World, as well as a couple other books, and a, a film comment podcast fan. Don't tell the other podcast because... <laughs> How is that not the first sentence in your bio? Excuse me, you right? wrote a book? Who cares, okay? A fan of all podcasts, you might just want to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm a, I am love all podcasts. I would appreciate appearing on all of them to sell my book. Uh, no, I really got into the Film Comment podcast during the pandemic, which was also when I was writing this book, which is also when I got into watching a lot more better movies because so many of them were being put on, like film festivals were going online, streaming was, the quality of streaming movies was improving. And so I was sort of doing that while I was writing in the book. And so I think movies end up playing a bigger role for me and for in the construction of the book than one might imagine. Uh, and even someone who knows me might imagine. I used to have very bad taste in movies. So I'm excited to uh, to talk about it from that angle. Well, I just, I want to, you know, it seems very clear reading the book, the scope of your knowledge and erudition is, is it's pretty big. So I, I'm impressed by how many movies you're, you were able to see and then kind of weave into this narrative. And let's just talk a little bit about like what this book's about. Um, Palo Alto, a history of California, California capitalism, and, and the world. The world. So you know, that gives you an idea scale. of that. Yeah, keeping yeah succinct. You know, a little micro narrative right, about right. everything. If you could start by telling us a little bit, I'm sure you've done the spiel many times, but a little bit about what motivated the book and what also motivated like its specific structure and trajectory, um, the ideas you bring together, which are all ideas that have been written about. But I think what's distinctive about your book is the specific way um, in which you're bringing together past and present and a lot of disparate anecdotes about California and Californians. So tell us a little about that. Yeah, so I grew up in Palo Alto, California, mostly from age 8 to 18. Uh, and I really didn't want to write this book, which is sort of how I ended up writing this book, is I feel like for, for writers in my cohort, especially those of us without uh, advanced degrees, if you want to write serious history about the world, a good way to do that and to like access the credibility to do that is by writing about something you have some personal connection to, something you can place yourself within. And the the easiest sell on something like this is the most 
dramatic trauma of your childhood, right? And for me, the the pretty easy one, the first place there is the, uh, they called it an epidemic of youth suicides in Palo Alto starting when I was in high school and continuing into the present day. And so that was sort of the obvious book for me to write for my third book to find something to sell so I could, you know, work during the pandemic. I really didn't want to do it. And so it was that feeling of not wanting to do it, I guess, that pushed me into doing it. And when I originally sold it, it was like way more memoiristic, you know, very like the the original pitch was very like Didion, like, you know, I was going to integrate my own experiences in Palo Alto with this sort of full 170 year history of this place, which no one had really written before. And that's how I sold it to the publisher. And that's how I sat down to write it. And I did sort of write a lot of that. Um, But it became pretty clear very fast that I wasn't very good at this personal memoir stuff it didn't fit with the rest of the material. It just like didn't line up well. It was like the the feeling of the juxtaposition of like my whatever, whatever childhood stories with this deep history was not uh, helping either one, right? Um, and then I also found out I had a lot more history that I wanted to tell than I originally planned to. So I sold the book at 80,000 words and I think I turned in a quarter million words. Uh, And I told my editor in advance, I didn't just drop it on her desk or whatever. Uh, (laughs) uh, But almost none of that is memoir, right? So I've got like a couple pages in the beginning, a couple pages at the end. And really what I wanted, found myself doing was writing this history 170 years or so all the way through from the Anglo-American colonization of Alta California in the second half of the 19th century with the gold rush Um, and the Transcontinental Railroad in the 1860s into 2020. And when people in the past have written about regional history, and often is about the tech industry, and it's often told in this sort of business history way, if they talk about the origins of the 19th century, um, they'll like use it metaphorically, or they'll like refer to the gold rush and then jump forward to the radio age or jump forward to the microchip age. And I wanted to do it, you know, all the way through, just straight through. And I thought I was going to have to do a lot of like metaphorical linking, but it turns out it's not that long of a history, right? Like it's less than 200 years. You can do it pretty straight through. And so that's the way I ended up telling it. Yeah. You frequently call back to like the railroad industry as like a an analog to even the tech industry and like the way that these, that these businesses that uh, kind of just proceeded to dominate their, their respective markets. And the railroads place in the suicides that you mentioned. Which yeah. Is, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that that all kind of links together, but the, but I don't think that's frequently, I've never read a history a, a business history that, that kind of is that sweeping and also draws that through line across such a, you know, a, I don't know, a century and a half. Right. Yeah. And what's interesting about the railroad is that, you know, as your book points out, it's actually also essential to the history of cinema in America, Mm -hmm. because railroad engineers were working with Edward Mybridge to develop cameras that could capture the, you know, the horse locomotion studies, the, the pioneering studies, which he was tasked with doing by Leland Stanford, who apparently had like a bet about how horses galloped maybe apocryphal that is so that is is now commonly believed to be apocryphal the gambling story and what it really was this when we when we talk about when you think about the horses and leland stanford and the horses if you know about them you probably know about them in reference to edward moybridge and the first moving pictures which was part were commissioned by Stanford. And he was one of the few people who had the sort of resources to commission a ridiculous project like that, as well as, as you say, access to house engineers, right? So he could go over to the railroad and be like, let me borrow a few of these guys. I need to figure out how to like do motion pictures. And that, then they did. Um, and so Moybridge likes to take a lot of credit for, you know, doing this whole thing, but he was one technician in this larger project. And he was quick to apply for a patent. So yes, well, he was, and he was a 
he was a business guy that Moybridge, uh, but so was Stanford and Stanford was the better one. And he was the one who ends up winning the intellectual property lawsuit between the two of them. But the Moybridge project itself was really only a small part of Leland Stanford's horse breeding efforts. And it's told sort of the other way around as like the Moybridge moving pictures is the big thing that comes out of this like horse bet that this is a small thing that Stanford does that produces this big technology. Uh, but he was involved, he had the largest and most developed horse training uh, complex in the world. And breeding, I think, which is very important to the... Yeah, horse breeding and training. Yeah. And that was the Palo Alto stock farm? And so that's the Palo Alto stock farm. So this is Palo Alto is formed as this stock, as this stock farm that is the biggest project of its kind in the world. And horses at, at this point are not just like objects for gambling or whatever. They're the most important technology in the world. They are the en engines of everything that moves. They run canals, they run streetcars, they run agricultural technology, they run the military because they got to drag all the equipment, you know, to everywhere where it's going. So when he's working in this and on this particular system that he calls the Palo Alto system, where he's going to revolutionize the production of horses. Moybridge's photos, the whole you know creation of moving pictures is just some small part in this larger horse development, breeding, training uh, effort. And that's how Stanford thought about it and talked about it. And so we look back on it now and we say, that's so funny that he thought of that moving pictures as just one part of his like silly horse thing when you know moving pictures is the most important thing that comes out of this, but that's not true at all. He was inv involved in something even, even bigger than motion pictures. Um, and so that relationship gets sort of flipped in the historiography. Yeah. Can you say a little more about the Palo Alto system? Because that is a very big sort of specter of, of haunting in your book of, of haunted Palo Alto. And it's the Palo Alto system has a very particular marriage of data and control and capital and also, I mean, race and labor, uh, just a lot of different things. And you do kind of locate its origins around Leland Stanford and the horses. So if you could talk a little bit about that so this stock this palo alto stock farm was not just uh, a effort to improve horses by scale by having the biggest one or whatever uh stanford and his head trainer charles marvin developed what they called the palo alto system to what they planned to do was to create improved horses and what Stanford optimal wrote, optimal horses, optimal horses. So Stanford writes as, and as I said, this is the crucial technology of, a, of the United States at the time, especially in California, where because their farms were technologically advanced in California, they used more horses than the rest of the farms in the country did three times more horses per farm in California than in the rest of the country. So they need these horses meant a lot. Um, and so Stanford says, I'm going to, you know, the people have been training horses for thousands of years, but I'm going to change it. I've got science and technology and capital on my side. Um, we're going to change the way we make horses. And what he did is he looked to Germany where they were starting what became the young child children's uh, education movement. And so they just invented this institution in Germany called the kindergarten that we, na we now all know. So there was no kindergarten west of the Rockies at this point in the United States, but Leland Stanford and Charles Marvin decide they're going to build a kindergarten track for horses, which was a miniature track so that they could race young horses as fast as possible so that they could uh, find out who the fastest young horses were and support them. Uh, and this went, flew in the face of, you know, many hundreds of years of horse breeding and training wisdom, which is that you got to wait till they get a little older or else you could, you risk injuring perfectly good horses. If you snap a ligament on a horse, you know, that, that horse is toast. It's not worth it. And Stanford says, I'm doing this at such a scale that I can afford those losses in order to get these super fast young horses. With it's worth ligaments. it to me. Right. Well, and he, they figure that, that, 
a horse's potential was always imminent in the cult, right? So we're not gonna we're not gonna develop the fastest horse. We're gonna find out who the fastest horse already is because this is like early ideas of genetics, right? Is that like it's already there? You just gotta figure out which one it is to to get. So this is part of what cameras are useful for, right? Is like analyzing the gait of a horse, right? Uh, so it makes sense why he. Stanford would be interested in cutting edge camera technology as part of this effort, um, which was really about shortening the production process for horses so that you could sell them faster um, and do so profitably. And this, they, they'd succeed in this effort. They produce the fastest, youngest horses in the world and everyone has to concede that this Palo Alto system works. And because horses get replaced as engines of the country pretty quickly in the 20th century, we sort of write this Palo Alto system and the stock farm mostly out of history, even as a metaphor. And that's where we see Moybridge's, uh, the moving pictures really take over for the whole uh, project. But I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think it's important to look at the Palo Alto systems and the you know, impersonal injunctions of profit and speed and scale and these kind of things that are going to underlie the regional economy for 150 years into the present. I think simultaneously the personality of Moybridge and his personal history kind of like can be, <laughs> it's maybe not a metaphor, but you see the seeds of that kind of uh, drive to succeed in his life story well and also like head damage like i was yeah, pretty convinced yeah. i'm pretty convinced by the the story that like he sustained a traumatic brain, brain injury yeah. and was just like pretty wacky the rest of his life yeah. it, i think the funniest one is the photo of him like sitting on the edge of this giant boulder over a cliff with a camera that he set up and it's like the most a, like archetypical selfie influencer pick <laughs> like exactly what you look like that oh i'm standing sitting somewhere i absolutely should not be sitting yeah. like i'm yeah. so badass and he took the you know he's taking this to the end of the 19th century but it's exactly the same and so it's really funny it's almost uncanny like how much like those photos that photo looked like yeah and also i mean he murdered like his wife's lover and then mm -hmm. Leland Stanford was like I'm gonna pay for your lawyer so you can keep making my horse pictures well <laughs> Which... even, even like yeah the before the horse pictures this was like you know he was just like a photographer that he knew for his yeah he'd take pictures of the mansion and stuff um yeah he he murders his wife's lover who is a uh, Harry Larkins who's a theater critic because he's uh, off, you know, taking the critics, pictures. The victims of history. Right? Uh, yeah, he's uh, he's off. Uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. The the first uh, movie maker, let's say, ends up murdering Kill a critic. Kill theater. Right? Kill he, he theater. He literally kills a theater Before critic. he had a chance to criticize his work, too. Right? Yeah, before he ever could become a film critic, he's yeah. murdered. Uh, yeah, because he's the cat. He's the, like, you know, local caddish uh mm -hmm film critic, but also or a theater critic, but also uh, there were very few women in California at this time. And so Moybridge's wife was also was much younger than him um, and effectively single because Moybridge was out uh, going, taking it on his camera adventures because he was mm -hmm. going and loved traveling and taking yeah. pictures. He was like the first photographer hired by the US military I think at this point he was so he was photo photographing uh Indian wars at this point right. Um, right and so she's just like this you know young chick in uh in San Francisco like uh you had the like the top guys in town calling for her, which included Harry Larkins who was this like noted cad in town was this theater critic who's just taking her to the theater and stuff whatever um and Moybridge comes home and he finds a photo of their son, Florado. Great name. Yeah, Florado no, his Moybridge. name is amazing. I think um, the middle name is also something. In, yeah. A lot of everybody's got good names. But he finds Harry's name written on the back of the photo where she'd written like Harry Jr. or something <laughs> like that, so, like re really bad, like right. bad OPSEC. Uh, and so he it's the story of how he like tracks down Larkins is so funny because he has to because like transportation is very difficult at the time so like take a stagecoach he takes a ferry you know he like gets to the guy's door like knocks on the door the guy's opens the door and he 
basically blows him away. Right. Um, but he's ultimately acquitted by a jury of his peers. And you think about what his peers are at the end of 19th century uh, frontier mm-hmm. California. And it's a bunch of, you know, crazy dudes who think like, yeah, theater critic, like, sleeping with your wife is justification for murder basically (laughs) especially with the help of Leland Stanford which uh, he has implied yeah there's something about the scene of Stanford and Moybridge inviting press and all these detractors and and then showing them how the images were captured and having this I mean it, it just recalls to me scenes from you know these tech movies where some guy like demonstrate demonstrates mm-hmm. his code and it works and it's just something about like it is invisible to the naked eye there is something going on that is like not entirely visible um and to be able to like demonstrate how it works and in the process of doing that somehow just like elide so many questions like material questions right like of labor and and of capital. I, I find that very evocative, that whole scene. But I did really love Jordan Peele's note because I thought it really brought those kind of the histories that that kind of um the invisible tech victory of Moybridge, if you can put it that way, like was just like rooted in this illusion of so many like material and personal histories. And I was wondering if you liked that film. I did not like that film. And I'll tell you why, because okay. it elides a whole different history, which is the history of finance uh, mm. and its role in movie. And so it totally just skips over the whole issue of finance and that these people, the idea that this family like owns that ranch without a mortgage is extremely hard to believe. Uh, And the same institution financed the movie industry that also owned all the mortgages on all the farmland Mm. in California, which is the Bank of Italy, which becomes the Bank of America. And they financed the beginning of the movie industry from the first Nickelodeons on the corner in San Francisco which again is where the movie industry starts, not in LA, but in San Francisco. Uh-huh. Um, but then they finance the early Disney corporation, mm-hmm. they're financing all of that. And so they're, they're like that, that finance plays no role in this entire movie, I think is like completely mistaken. And so it's sort of ahistorical in that way that it's not talking about what are the forces that create this mm-hmm. spectacle that they're talking mm-hmm. about. And instead you get sort of the like vibe based, like, oh, it's about like, we're all consumers and yeah, we're all the like the, spe- the, spectacle. the spectacle and like, you know, the camera makes the monkey crazy or whatever. Right. right. Um, you have the audience, the performer, and then like the spec, the final spectacle or like the carnival Barker character. And then like the spectacle that he's right. But what's missing is capital, right? right Where right, is right. capital in this story? Uh, it's all, it's, it's inherited. No, it's inherited. And in, I think in both cases, right. In terms of it, what's the, the guy who runs the, theme park steven yen yeah the he steven was like yen a child yeah all of his money came from being a child actor so he's bringing in that and like creating this other in- entertainment right. thing and then which is again like again that's not that's not how capital works it's right. not like oh you have a job and then you have money and then you own a business like that's not what capital is right like that's 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 a like children's story about mm-hmm. how finance works whatever it's I, like oh i own i earned a lot of money and now i like lend some to somebody else or like i have a business or whatever it's like that's not what finance is and this the american story of finance is very short mm-hmm. and so you can trace the, the the history of the bank of america the history of the bank of italy is very short. It's only as long as the history of film, right? They like these have the exact same history and it's the exact same duration. It's the same one that I'm writing about. Um, and so to like remove that part of the history for me was very frustrating watching the movie and making it sort of epiphenomenal or about mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, media and feelings right, right, right. as opposed to like capital and power and control. Yeah, but I will say in its defense, because I I do think it's uh it's quite a good movie is that the one thing it does do is that it it gives that kind of embodiment to the origin of movies which again even though the Mybridge pictures are literally like a horse in motion the the history around them like feels weirdly disembodied I mean 
it's like this again it's it's the story of a machine you know and what i did like about nope is the fictionalized story the idea that the characters are descendants of the jockey who was who's mm-hmm. like in these pictures taken by my bridge and yes that's sort of a simplification that's like making lore out of a kind of complex history of the use of migrant black labor uh immigrant labor in a lot of the you know industries that sprouted in california which includes film but i did i think that film does that at least really well of like just asking like a very simple question like who was sitting on top of the horse and you know who was wrangling the horse and that's kind of a question with i think metaphorical potential and to me really that movie is about that and not as much as about like the terror of spectacle but but so so but they get that sort of wrong right because it's mm-hmm. first of all it's not in socal right that jockey was in not in, and was in northern california and not just anywhere in northern california but palo alto right and where is palo why does it, why do they end up in palo alto why is this going on in palo alto and it happens for specific reasons right right and and ain't no black family owns a ranch in palo alto right like like that that could not be inherited there was not the control of property and so they're they're telling a a sort of just so version of this history where like oh yeah the jockey who was on top of that horse who it's true we do not have the name of there are some ideas of who it might have been um like stays on the horse right it's like oh yeah and then and then our family has passed that down through the generation absolutely didn't happen right not not the case uh and the question of you're sounding dangerously like a well actually guy (laughs) well no i'm just saying if this is trying to tell this history of cinema and this history specific of who's on the horse and why that's a very interesting question that goes in my book and it's a a question of the black population in california at the close of the 19th century is a very interesting one and when you're talking about free black labor in california you know slavery was ended uh in theory by this period yeah um very very limited amounts of free black labor in california at the time and what there was was mostly concentrated in like domestic servants uh domestic service um occupations and so palo alto because of the presence of stanford university ends up with a disproportionate Stanford, first the stock farm and then the university, a disproportionately large black community for California at the time, which more or less did not admit black people to the state, uh, you know, for mm-hmm. its first decades. It was very hostile right. to black migration. Uh, and so there was a there was a small but substantial black community uh, around Stanford University that is now in one of the most valuable uh, real estate neighborhoods in the history of the world, right? Mm. Mark Zuckerberg, the neighborhood where Mark Zuckerberg, Crescent Park in downtown Palo Alto, where Mark Zuckerberg like bought a block, used to be a black neighborhood for the service workers who, you know, cooked for the Mm -hmm. frats and uh, sororities at Stanford and did the domestic work uh, in and around the university. Uh, like that was the black neighborhood that was owned by and lived in by the people who had been riding those horses. Right. Uh, like what happened to that land, right? What happened to that story? Like that's the actual history of this stuff and to tend to like, oh, and we had some land in Southern California. No, you didn't. Like what land in Southern California? Like, what are you talking about? Uh, that's all bank land. And it's not owned by like small families. They were owned by like cartels and that were Mm. mortgaged to the bank of america and so to like rewrite it as this like small family farm history um and tell this tell its origin there and it's not a farm it's a ranch and whatever but it's like that's not what ranching looked like in california that's not how capitalism worked i mean i think we don't have to keep talking about nope but i I think you're. I think you're more or less right, and I think the movie is much more interested in this kind of, in this like, you know, pie in the sky idea about spectacle and the magic of cinema and like the power. I mean, of... it's a vibes film, but as yeah. far as vibes films go, you know, it's fun. It's uh, yeah, it, it made some points. 
The Film Comment Podcast is supported by Cinema Made in Italy, presenting The Eight Mountains, an award-winning epic journey of friendship and self-discovery, set in the breathtaking Italian Alps, from the filmmakers behind Oscar nominee The Broken Circle Breakdown. A landmark cinematic experience as intimate as it is monumental, The Eight Mountains traces over several decades the lives of two childhood friends from different backgrounds who reunite as adults to build a mountainside cottage which becomes a site of both reflection and reconciliation. Winner of the jury prize at the 2022 Cannes Film Festival, the Los Angeles Times calls the film magnificent, a gorgeous, glorious retreat, and The Guardian raves five stars, beautiful, this is a movie with air in its lungs and love in its heart. Starring Luca Marinelli and Alessandro Borghi, and based on the award-winning novel by Paolo Cognetti, The Eight Mountains is in select theaters this Friday. Visit cinemamadeinitaly.com for more information. But I want to talk a little more about the university, Stanford University, which again is such a big part of your book, and not just Stanford University, but like a model of education. I mean, education in the Bay Area, in Palo Alto, as like descending from this stock farm and like continuing a lot of those ideas and like how much of Stanford's history is shaped by eugenicists. Um, I found that like very interesting. And a movie that you mention in that context is Better Luck Tomorrow by Justin Lin, mm -hmm. um, which... So I, I watched in preparation for this conversation and was really surprised by it because it's it's not directly about a lot of things that you talk about in your book, but it's kind of about all of them on mm -hmm. on the level of like atmosphere and the on the level of setting. It's almost like the things that are absent from the movie are um, are a lot of the things that the kind of education system you describe that is like then linked to speculative capitalism, like strives to make absent. And maybe you could just lead us in by saying a little bit about like when you encountered that movie. I mean, as someone who was a, I guess, high schooler in Palo Alto, uh, I imagine that movie had some special significance to you, even though it's not set in, it's not set in Palo Alto. Right? No, another yeah, one that's it, set in SoCal, but shouldn't, should be should set be. in, <laughs> like that knows it's from, it's in, like that's the South, that's the South Bay. Like, I mean, I'm sure co there are communities. Co-opting co the culture of the North, right? Communities in, uh, in Southern California that it applies to as well, but it certainly felt to me like the South Bay. Okay. Um, when it, and it's a story of a, Asian American community of students. I don't think it's ever like specified specifically that they're Chinese American or Korean American, but or Vietnamese American, um, which is a, a different topic that we could talk about yeah. the the, the non-specificity there that is uh, maybe a little unrealistic. Uh, but about this group of Asian American students, seniors in high school, who the, the like pressure to succeed um, sort of, pushes them down a path towards gangsterism. Uh, and they turn into like basically a, a crew of, of uh, gangsters. They're selling test answers, right? Being mm, so good like at the test. do. Right. Well, it will be, I mean, they're in terms of at a, at a school or whatever, yeah, that's yeah, the most yeah. valuable commodity around more so than drugs even, right? Is the, the right answers to the test. And that's sort uh -huh. of part of the story, right? Is when education becomes so competitive, they start basically a, education cartel where they're selling the test answers that pushes them down a path towards uh, money and mm -hmm. violence and the kind of success that you get. And the it's a story of how once success is more broadly understood uh, in the 90s as just like winning and however you win, it doesn't matter how you do it as long as you do it. Mm -hmm. uh, invites these kind of shortcuts to success through brutality and gangsterism and violence and cheating and stealing and uh, as was the the spirit of the end of history we could say right mm. is like of the the capitalist un one capitalist world uh, doesn't matter how you win as long as you win mm -hmm. idea there's no morality except in in winning and yeah yeah striking to me is that there are no parents in the movie. I mean, you mm -hmm. never see parents, which I don't think is that common for these kinds of, like the high school movie genre that this film seems to fit in because usually the kids have 
a figure of authority that's either like the teachers or the parents, like the adults are in some way, you know, um, something like uh, something to rebel against mm-hmm. or in some way to form your identity against. I don't even think there are really teachers in the movie except mm-hmm. for maybe like a basketball coach. And um, I think maybe I can't remember if you I actually say this in the book, but you do, do say that the film like forwards this vision of extreme individualism mm-hmm. at a young age, this extreme self-sufficiency as if these kids mm-hmm. were programmed and then just like go live your lives and live them to the you know optimum extent. Yeah, and the idea that they've so internalized these injunctions, these impersonal injunctions that they don't need the like individual instructions because they're already their own harshest critic. Mm-hmm. And so you see the main character, I think it's Ben, right? Yeah. saying like, I'm going to take this, I'm going to work my free throws. I'm going to take a hundred every day. I'm going to make a hundred free throws. You know, uh, I'm going to get my percentage up. I'm going to make, get all my grades. You know, they're constantly talking about their grades, et cetera. I think you um, call it like the achievement subject. Is that? Yeah. Well, Byung Chul Han, the, right. the philosopher, the German philosopher uh, calls it the achievement subject. And I think Ben's a perf- perfect example of that like subjectivity. And what he says about the achievement subject is that you don't have the whole point of the achievement subject is you don't have to tell them what to do. They're going to try to do everything they can. Mm. And so can the gap between can and should falls apart because mm-hmm. you should do everything you can. And once you do that, then morality falls along, along the way. Right. Cause you're like, well, should I do this? I don't know. I can do it. So maybe I guess I should. A very at- atomic bomb type mentality. Well, and this, I think the movie does just a really excellent job of capturing that kind of psychology. And I think that yeah. the relegating all adult authority to just an impersonal voice in the characters' heads, right? That they know these are the conditions of their lives one way or the other, and that they, they know what they have to do. I think that's that was a, a striking and really accurate way to do that um, because it, clarifies that what all these characters are experiencing is not individual it's not that one you know you happen to have a bad mom or dad or whatever Mm -hmm. or like you happen to have someone who's not supportive or someone who's too supportive or or that they're like somehow aberrant like sociopaths right yeah they just seem like normal dudes i mean maybe they're like a couple of them like the sun can character is like a little bit of a bad guy but they're really not you know they're not like killing animals in their backyard or like no, yeah. they're just trying to win they're just trying to be successful yeah. right? and, this is and a- i'm not just win i think they the fact that they're asian american mm-hmm. is again not like so thematized in the film except for some you know obviously there are conflicts with like white jocks uh i mean first of all i just found striking that the movie just assumes this asian american kind of universe like they go to the super uh, supermarket the cashier is Asian American, you know, the popular girl girl is Asian American. Like it just kind of assumes this, this world, which obviously feels kind of surprising for an early two thousands high school movie. Um, but even though it doesn't like the movie doesn't necessarily talk about racism and discrimination. I found it like such a complex gesture at the model like how these kids are like deploying the model minority myth and they're both sort of like trapped within it but also using it to their ends and then you know in the book you trace so much of Palo Alto and the Bay Area's present to uh, its relationship with migrant populations and migrant labor specifically Chinese Mm -hmm. and how the place of Chinese immigrants has I mean, it's such a complex history of being courted for labor, then being excluded, you know, being kind of resented for their own brand of very efficient capitalism. And then, you know, in the present day, this kind of mix of, um, yeah, Asian Americans having this like almost assimilated kind of place, but at the same time, always being reminded of their difference. The movie really kind of gets gets at all of that, I think, because these kids kind of already have everything. They seem like they're from middle-class 
upper middle class families mm-hmm. going to a great school great grades friends they're good at like ben's good at sports i mean yes he gets like teased but they're not really lacking that much they're not like the typical nerds you see in films mm-hmm. but they still feel like feel like they have to strive for a particular kind of excess that remains out of reach for them um yeah, I also just to jump on that. I think there's another movie you mentioned in the book is Chan is Missing, the 1980 Wayne Wang film, very well known. But um, it, which is really just about this these issues of identity and how Asian Americans, Chinese Americans in San Francisco and Chinatown, are just constantly navigating these different pathways and different identities that they're deploying in different situations. So much so that the central character Chan goes missing. Like they can't really pin down who this person is, which is uh, it's just an interesting case study of this this idea yeah. that you touch on in the book. And yeah, it's it's like in in I'll just say one last thing. Like in Better Luck Tomorrow, it's like somehow no matter how much they're striving and how much they're accumulating by virtue of their identity and like their uh, the history that they belong to in this place there is some reward that is like always elusive. Yeah. And I think one of the, one of the things that that movie does really well and the way that you're and you describe it well as well is that, and that felt familiar to me as someone who went to high school in the South Bay at this time is that there is a, a distinct East Asian American student community that is like separate and has its own norms from the like white majority uh like mainstream culture and just like straight up they've got their own cool kids they've got their own like practices they go to their own like events you know don't necessarily interact socially with uh a lot of the like white kids or um the like mainstream culture of the school or whatever because they they like have a distinct one and that was a movie that inhabited that culture and treated it as like normal and like worth um existing in and thinking about and you do have this conflict in the movie where they get in the fight with the jocks and like pull the gun etc and it's very dramatic but like realistically that probably wouldn't happen because you just like wouldn't be at the same parties because like why would they want to go to the white kids party just like straight up and you have a few kids who like maybe you know maybe you go to the white kids party sometimes but like it's not like you're drawing their, your standards for like how to be from them or whatever. Mm. And so someone like, so I went to school with Jeremy Lin, a uh, famous Asian American basketball player. Mm-hmm. And he was someone who was, you know, like everyone like knew he was, he was cool. You were in high school the same time he was. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I sat, sat across from him and at Java programming and, and like whatever. And he was someone who sort of like straddled the like the. So how was he in uh, had Java programming? I was fine. I don't care. <laughs> he wasn't like a he wasn't a nerd or anything. Um, and I think that and that, that's the, mo- the thing that the movie does well is, mm. is show that like it's not like every kid in the the Asian American like clique at school is a nerd or whatever. But the chain is missing. I think is a is a different kind of movie in that it's yeah, more uh, independent and takes place at an earlier period but one of the things it does so well is show how mysterious this like relationship between different groups of Chinese immigrants was to people trying to understand them from the Mm -hmm. outside because what that movie captures just so excellently is this moment where you have uh, a wave of immigrants who had immigrated from Taiwan and who associated uh, like China with the displaced KMT government uh, and were anti-communists and sometimes fervent anti-communists. Uh, and then you had a, another wave of immigration who were coming from mainland communist China and associated with the, the People's Republic as the government of China. And so you've got like two, uh, basically like the continuation of a civil war in San Francisco among these two groups that as far as like white people are concerned are the exact same people. And I have no idea that they are like two groups. Of these yeah. People. I think there's a, mo- there's a, there's a discussion of some fight that the two groups are getting into and the mayor comes intervenes and says about which flag to fly at us at a, during a parade. And this is real. The, yeah. And the mayor says, just use the American flag. And they're like, no, like that they just show up and use the flags that they were going to use. And so this, this, uh, like the the atmosphere of that movie mm-hmm. is really is a very like 
like second generation trying to like understand what are the politics like the the perspective we're given on this is sort of like one foot in one foot out like half assimilated trying to understand the the history of these like political conflicts that do not make themselves apparent for lots Mm -hmm. of good reasons right there are lots of good reasons why you wouldn't want to like surface this conflict uh like in san francisco um one of the reasons including that it like makes it harder to conduct in like the face of the public mm-hmm. uh, or in the face of the authorities um and so chan as this character is this really like ends up being very mysterious even to other characters within his community right because everyone's right. like keeping quiet about this as we move forward into this next period and you have this sort of like quiet history of immigration in the past and these like this history of military conflict uh mm-hmm. that gets silenced or quieted and i talk about uh like the difference between the the fresh off the boat tv series right, right. uh we talking and about the, right the book before. yeah which is really interesting where the book talks about like oh yeah my dad was like uh, you know a gangster <laughs> and like had a bunch of guns and you know mm-hmm. like was a thug to like the the like tv version is like i'm a smiling asian american lawyer happy dad no he's a, like rest- <laughs> what is he a, a restaurant restaurant owner restaurateur which he was he was a restaurateur in real life you know that's that's not false but like it's interesting to understand that like you know those asian american immigrant like restaurant owners a lot of them had like serious military pasts or whatever and like Mm -hmm. they got to that point maybe because of those serious military pasts and like because they had a like specific political position and you know uh or like maybe a position in the military and it's you like wipe that like history of violence that is totally bound up in america's history of cold war violence um and replace it with the like model minority small business owner or whatever like striving for success and you do have the sort of the cell phone ring from under the ground which is the first scene and that's the beginning of a uh, better life tomorrow right is like the buried body that's ringing underneath the 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 suburban lawn right uh and so that's that history even though it doesn't really get into it in that movie have you heard of this movie unrest by cyril shalblin it's a swiss movie i don't think so tell me tell me more <laughs> this is why I tune in to Film Comment Podcast 4 is to hear about the new movies. Well, you know, I, I was very struck by there's a paragraph early, I think in the first chapter of your book, and you're describing, is it a Swiss guy named Sutter? Sutter, yeah. Johan yep. Sutter, yeah. Johan Sutter. And how he really changed things because he used a bell to mm-hmm. and sort of made yep. workers clock in and clock out based on the sound of the bell. So he like started divvying up time into discrete economic units in a certain way like through this bell and it made me think of this movie unrest which is like you know some kind of inverse of what you're describing about palo alto um uh, it's about you know piotr kropotkin he goes to this like swiss watchmaking town in the mountains in the 1870s and they have like four different times there's like factory time right clint and then there's like um there's post office time, I believe. I mean, they're still figuring out the concept of time and how it relates to production. And there's a watchmaking factory and then a sort of competing anarchist watchmaking, like collective. But, you know, I mean, it was a real struggle and people fought against the imposition Mm -hmm. of clock time everywhere, all over. Well, let's let's move forward in history to like like the uh, dot-com era. I don't know how we plucked this film out of the pages of your book, but Antitrust, this 2001 thriller directed by Peter Howitt, a director whose work I'm not familiar with at all. And can I just say, I genuinely did not know about this movie until I read your book, and it is just absolutely peerless cinema. I definitely saw it in the theaters at Century 16 in Mountain okay. View with, you know, my friend Max's big brother, Ben, drove us to the theater to go see Antitrust. So Antitrust, do you want to give a thumbnail description of this movie? There we go. So basically, it there's this company called Nerve, extremely thinly veiled. N-U-R-V, uh, I think. is N-U-R-V, like, extremely thinly veiled counter, like on-screen counterpart to Microsoft, headed by... a 
Tim Robbins plays like the CEO. Again, like just everything about him is like dressed up to look like Bill Gates. I will, my favorite part about this movie are the little cutaway shots of Tim Robbins like sipping a Coca-Cola in a funny way or like eating as he takes like, eating bites chips. and it shows him like eating a chip kind of very deliberately. Just like I don't stuffing know why these, why they did this. But it's no, just, he's they have, it's so cartoonish it's a great and sinister. Performance. It's yeah. so good. Anyway, so he has this company. It's embroiled in like antitrust, um, just like legal issues. And apparently it was made right after, or like while Microsoft was going through mm-hmm. the same thing in yeah. like the real world. Yeah, so it's just very much, you know, ripping from the headlines from what I can tell. And Ryan Phillip is just graduated from Stanford. He and his friend are working on this software that they want they want to make it open source you know they believe that like human knowledge must belong to the world until nerve calls up ryan phillips character and is like come work for us you'll be doing something great for humanity and it's that conversation that tim robbins character has with ryan phillip is people still talk like that you know Mm -hmm. like really you're just especially at stanford right you're just gonna like give your code to the world. What do you think will come of that? Like instead you could make billions of money and donate to museums and hospitals and be a charitable person. I mean, that is like a completely accepted like ethical argument mm-hmm. for wealth accumulation on the West Coast even now. Anyway, uh, I, I should Coast keep this short. doesn't fly. <laughs> no. <but even laughs> East Coast, it's a different, I feel like there's a kind of slightly different. The like due succession. diligence is a little, tr- is a little trickier. It's I don't not, know. It's, the, it's yeah. a very particular. I mean, the idea of like these benevolent billionaires. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Like, there's. It's a very. It feels. I get you. No, like, no, I get you. Yeah. Anyway, so he goes and starts working for them, and then <laughs> he discovers that they're up to all sorts of murky shit. And um, they. Oh, spoiler alert! If you haven't seen the movie, but they're literally murdering programmers to steal their code with like secret cameras plant implanted in the houses of the coders to look over their shoulder and steal like somehow yeah. like OCR the code from twelve. This feet is like away. a I, not <laughs> a post nine eleven movie, or I mean, at least it was made prior to nine eleven. But mm-hmm. it's like so much about surveillance culture and like how everyone is being watched, but not by like corporate entities tied up with the government and like no one can be trusted not even the woman mm-hmm. you've been sleeping with for like a year turns out she's a plant too and he goes goes Spoiler. to the justice department and the justice department's in on it and, it, and he realizes that because he sees the number he sees a picture of the justice department guy in a football uniform mm-hmm. that says nd47 and that's like a code within this i don't know it's yeah. complicated no it's it's incredibly convoluted and which makes it quite entertaining because the twists are sort of ridiculous but truly i enjoyed it so much because this is an early 2000s movie about tech but it's not about technophobia in the sense that a lot of movies from that time were about like Mm. tech is going to get too powerful ai is going to become sentient Mm -hmm. it's about people like it's about about capital right it's about Mm -hmm. corporate greed and corporate entities that can take things that actually could be good for the world like open source software that helps you like communicate easily and make them bad and i found that to be like yeah like it's a message i can get behind and it's delivered with really entertaining visuals and montage i mean eisenstein had nothing on this movie <laughs> when... like you're kind of putting your reputation on the line that you're really <laughs> Uh, you're publicly you said i think you told me that this is one of the best movies you've seen you cannot repeat that on the record claire forlani ryan felipe uh is it rachel lay cook yeah yeah and tim robbins is this bizarre cartoonish bill gates tyler labine yeah that that's he he still works you know that guy that guy stays working also like they retained video on their you know on their system of the murders, but uh, these questions these are not. <laughs> and they 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 make one look like a, a anti Asian hate crime, which was right, so. Right. Jo- right, I remember right, right, being right. in the theater for me and seeing that you know die slur uh, yeah slur, uh, and it was it's like really takes I was really taken aback because it's right. like. But it's pretty interesting that then you have the this like, you know, Microsoft, this like white guy who's murdering and stealing from 
this young East Asian coder, Teddy, I guess he's probably Chinese. It is Teddy yeah. Chin, I think his name. Yeah. A Chinese American coder stealing him and murdering his stuff and then scrawling slurs on the wall. It and was, pinning was, it like, on really like intense. Uh, yeah, local right, pinning it on like skinheads or something. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I thought that was incredibly clever again for this entertaining trashy techno thriller that's actually kind of very canny uh a canny twist and you know it's representative i think it's saying more broadly about yeah just how immigration both like is like this in the past like this in inflow of labor now like the inflow of like talent or what like other countries like asia calls mm -hmm. brain drain and like the brain gain mm -hmm. Um, at the same time, like how how much the history of exclusion of Asian Americans is also being manipulated by these companies. It's re interesting that Ryan Philippe's character is is supposed to be this genius, but it also becomes clear one, uh, later on that the real genius is his is his Chinese American friend who refuses to work for Tim Robbins, and and Ryan Philippe's character is really just this conduit that he's trying through which he's trying to steal the code, right? I, that was my impression. That was my understanding of what was going on. I mean, Teddy is the one who cracks the solution, right? And right, that's right, right, why right. they go after him. But, and it's not, but it's not Ryan Philippe, the genius, the, you know, this kind of, like, the recruited one. Well, he does yeah. want them both. He just can't get them. And I thought, right, it, right. but it is, it, it was interesting. And I think notable looking back on it now, because it's very uncommon for, I think, movies of that time to take, the racial subtext and make it text in that way that right. we might we may, maybe more common now or more like comprehensible now where they're like oh you're drawing attention to this like you know racialized history of exploitation of tech workers and stuff mm -hmm. but at the time you watch that and you're like damn like didn't it feels like violently gratuitous in the same way that like racial violence is violently gratuitous right. and so it, like i find that like really effective as a like, mm -hmm. cinematic choice in a way that like they didn't have to do that yeah, yeah. uh like, like the movie doesn't have to do that and so the, that it does anyway feel and that that like this is part of the corporate plan yeah right mm -hmm. is that like writing this slur on the wall is yeah. part of the like corporate thugs activity is like right in line with all of california history right, right. Um, i didn't i didn't find it gratuitous honestly i just think a lot no of, no i think it works yeah. it, like it, but as a i guess as a as a young viewer it felt right, like right. Uh, like right. where was this coming from right like race wasn't part of this why is why is racial violence now part of this story yeah and it's like because I this think is about there business is like, right exactly about, this isn't about there race is, there yeah and that is like a myth that silicon valley companies perpetuate right and like i think that there are a lot of movies about silicon valley that will show Di like diversity because mm -hmm. that's how the workforce mm -hmm. here is but we'll not thematize that in any way because it's like doesn't matter it's all a meritocracy you can be indian you can be chinese you're all coders and i think i appreciated this movie again from 2001 for actually the dark ages <laughs> truly uh but you know actually zooming out a little bit to be like yeah this guy Teddy went to Stanford he's a genius he is a chinese person in california you know yeah. and like i i really appreciate it i mean i think that. that what's interesting is also just the characterization of the tim robbins bill gates character as like this totally nefarious puppet master evil mm -hmm. genius and that like when i'm trying to think of i mean in in I feel like the public faces of these uh, oligarchs is kind of just like you know they they are like of the you know until recently really the Bezoses and Gates they were they did somehow win the uh, charm offensive mm -hmm. and like mm. they came off as like philanthropists they were helping the world yep. and their exactly. and Amazon was doing a good thing for the world and Microsoft was helping but I think that like you know. Hollywood understood how to exploit like the flip side of that. And I don't think that this is, this movie is like a sincere anti-capitalist like tract. I disagree. I do, <laughs> I do think like you're saying, like it, it's a very canny, like in the first under, 10 it shows minutes a very of canny movie. understanding of this undercurrent of kind of e potential for evil. In the first 10 minutes of the movie, Teddy calls 
Tim Robbins's character Gary a monopolist fascist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm well, yeah, sure. But uh, but like but I think. That... And then he becomes a hero, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, he, he becomes like true, a martyr. It's certainly an anti-monopolist movie. And it's interesting <laughs> yeah. that when people ask me about like, oh, we have this recent, we've had the recent fall from grace of right, right. these tech leaders, you know, oh, we, re we, you know, we thought they were so great. And right, now right. Mark Zuckerberg doesn't look so great. And now, now, so now yeah. we're like, whatever, whatever, whatever. He's always and I, what I, he's, I'm I, leaving him. Well, and that's what, I, that's what I, that's <laughs> what I answer with antitrust is that these things are really cyclical. Yeah, and yeah. that, like, mm, you know, Bill yeah. Gates was the richest guy in the world, in a country and in a world that worshipped wealth above anything else. And he got, you know, and this depiction of him as a serial killer, monopolist serial killer, literal serial killer, like and murdering comical, people and stealing their code. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and like, snacker. and like weird, creepy weirdo, right? Yeah. And it's like the, they do the thing with the the digital art frames on the wall where mm -hmm, he wants people mm -hmm. to think he's like loves like art or whatever, but actually it's like anime girls or whatever. Which is, which is exactly what is on the wall of a, a like a 40 foot digital painting on the wall of MoMA right now. If when you enter that just like oh, really? holds people oh, captive, this constantly shifting like blur of 3D. I have not 3D. seen that. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but I mean, but he was yeah, depicted yeah. as this like as this villain, which and again it goes through cycles, and so like and I think that's the the Tim Robbins version, and it's funny that we think of him as like oh this is an over over the top depiction of how evil this guy is. Like yeah, he's a serial killer. That's pretty bad. Now we know some stuff about Bill Gates that was like at least as bad as some of that. It's like he's hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein and uh, like who fair, knows? Fair. Yeah. Like, like, like these guys are extremely creepy. Um, but then you can like go back and I sort of tell the story in the book of like cycles past and like in the 60s, they were chasing around Hewlett and Packard, uh, calling them war criminals, threatening to right. arrest mm -hmm. them. Uh, uh, like Leland Stanford back in the day, they had like settlers who were shooting at him mm -hmm. and his forces because uh, they were stealing land. Which and is why so, he moved, as you write, that why he moved to Stanford, like why he moved to Why he moved to Palo Alto in the first place yeah. is because the workers were so mad at him. So we, the reputations of these guys go through these cycles where they're the heroes mm -hmm. who are better than anyone else in the world who are leading America to like, you're a weirdo serial killer who just steals stuff from other people. Um, yeah. I think it's also interesting to think of that movie in, terms of hackers and the history right, of hackers because right. uh, it has i think it has an interesting relationship to that movie and i wrote about that like yeah. a million years ago um but okay. yeah people should definitely check out antitrust uh, it's one for that's like free on youtube on for tubi. free on tubi it's mm. one that's close to my heart and it always surprises me that like no one else has seen it um because like Palo Alto's in the movie and we were like sitting there in the movie theater being like, oh my God, it's us. We're there. It's who we are. Like they're showing a garage. And um, I, I also just wanted to quickly mention this short movie that you mentioned in the book that I found very revelatory as well, which is Workers Leaving the Googleplex by Andrew Norman, Norman Wilson. And the story behind that is actually sort of like a mini antitrust yeah. Um, right. I mean, it's 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 so conspiratorial and sinister. But this is a documentary about a real thing that happened to him. The premise is that Google started doing this initiative of scanning all the books everywhere into mm -hmm. Google Books, and mm -hmm. they hired actual people, like laborers, to sit and scan pages of books with like with scanning devices. And they were a specific cast of workers that had like a specific color coded badge and yep. a particular window of working so that they wouldn't like interact with the other workers. This weird mm -hmm. little like come in through the back door kind well, of thing. They had a separate building. And yeah. They... Yeah. And, and separate and, yeah. Uh, timing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Andrew was working there at the time and ended up like talking to them and filming interviews with them and then got like fired for it because the workers contract said that they could not talk to people about what they were doing and to report it if that happened. All, you know, which I shouldn't be shocked by because that's like so much of just corporate labor policies, especially in the tech world where, I mean, there's even a scene in antitrust when uh, Ryan Phillip called Teddy and he's like, how's work going? Well, we can't talk about it because we signed NDAs. I mean, this mm -hmm. like 
understanding that secrecy is so important for this business to function. And I, I, the, the, that short is just so, and the fact that it references, I mean, I'm closing the loop here. Right. It references the Lumiere brothers, workers leaving the factory um, and just thinking about, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways in which the tech industry feels non-industrial. You know, I mean, that's kind of how it markets itself. It's not like the mm. old days of people laboring manually, the old ways of working. This is a completely flexible new working environment. We're making things with our brains. But so, so little has changed. I mean, that's kind of so much of your book is about that. Like so little has changed from the fucking railroad. Yeah. And this internal labor market division by race in particular, which is one of the real points of that workers leaving the Googleplex, is that you had these contracted workers who were paid less, um, not given access to the benefits of being a Google worker in the same way that uh, Andrew Norman Wilson, though he was a contractor for a video editing company, was given these advantages, even though these other contractors for the scan ops uh, were not. And he talks about the differences there and how he gets he gets fired from his contracting position just for pointing this out and for like seeing it basically. And speaking of MoMA, I think at least last time I was at uh, New York MoMA, that one was on display. So uh, they can people can check it out online, but then also for free, yeah. On on um, and we'll link it in our in our show notes. Excellent, but, yeah. People should definitely yeah. check that out. Yeah. Well, it's certainly a good way to kind of bring this conversation up to close to the present even. And I guess we'll meet with you in another 150 years and, <laughs> and uh, update. We'll do an updated version of the podcast. I'm pretty sure we could do a, a whole another hour and a half uh, on the movies we didn't talk about oh, this time. We left time. so it's many. Fun with we Dick left... and Jane. We didn't even talk Dirty about Harry. the Dirty movie Harry. industry itself. Right. We didn't get into we the didn't Fear talk City. About the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. Like... But you know, an hour is not enough to get into the history of California capitalism and the world. There's uh, only so much we can scratch, you know. Even 700 pages <laughs> uh, won't get you there. Trust me. Yeah. I tried. Well, this was a complete pleasure for us and, you know, really grateful to you for like making us think about these ideas and films and through the book, which we really enjoyed. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm really looking forward to listening and very exciting for me to be on the podcast. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.